Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. The darkness has found you. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 8. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and I'm thrilled you could join me tonight. We have a rare two-story episode this evening, so best get right to it. Some horrors just will not wait. And the superb writings of Stephen Miller and N.M. Brown are certainly no exception. Shall we? You're listening to the standard edition of this program... If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Now... Allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies, and nightmares come to life, where those who seek the darkness need look no further. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. 
you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. And now, without further ado, from author Stephen Miller, I give you The Eyes of an Artist. My name is Daniel Burgess. I'm the photography coordinator for a public relations and marketing agency in Chicago. At least, that's what it says in my business card. I'm not so sure what I am anymore. Just before dawn, I dragged myself out of my apartment to catch the metro heading downtown so I could get to work early. Over the weekend, a client of ours ignited a dumpster fire on social media with some very unfortunate tweets, and the internet mob was out for blood with torches and calls to boycott. All hands on deck, my boss's email had read. And so, I found myself pacing the cold and lonely train station platform just after 4am, cursing the client under my breath. I yawned and stared into the orange glow of the lampposts, just trying to wake myself up. It didn't work. By the time I boarded the train, I was sleepy, frustrated, and utterly unprepared for what was about to happen. My eyes took a moment to adjust. The bright white lights in the vestibule were a stark contrast to the darkness outside. I stepped through the door and hooked a left up the narrow staircase to the second-level balcony. I dropped into the first empty seat as the train began to roll forward. It was less crowded than my usual 7.30 inbound. Two chairs ahead of me, a man in a suit and tie had reversed his seat back to face mine. He was using the chair between us as a makeshift table for his briefcase. His face was buried in a copy of the morning paper, and he was yammering to someone on his Bluetooth in business speak. Just kill me now, I thought. I laid my head against the window, hoping I'd be able to tune him out. That's when it happened. It's hard to say exactly when I noticed... Some subconscious defense in my mind had already detected the threat in my peripheral vision. Goosebumps rose. There was something about the man. The paper. He kept shifting in his seat, lowering the paper to make dramatic hand gestures to his business partner on the other end of the call, as if he could be seen. Every time he did so, he'd bring the paper back up to eye level and I would catch a glimpse of a color picture printed on the back. By the time I saw it clearly, my heart was already pounding. I realized then that my subconscious had been trying to protect me, warning me not to look. But, of course, it was too late. On the surface, it was just a photograph of graffiti, a mural on the side of a building... A pair of artists sent their back to the camera. They were painting a sea of blue and green abstracts around the portrait of a feminine face. The woman's skin was polished bronze, her expression neutral, and her eyes just a white space that seemed to shine through the page. Impossible as it was, I could feel myself being stared into by those eyes. As the newspaper fluttered up and down... 
I swear I saw the artists working, like one of those flip books we had as kids. But I was transfixed by those eyes. They beamed back at me like pools of molten titanium. You could describe what I experienced then as a panic attack, but it was worse in a way that I still struggle to recount. It was as if seeing that picture had entered the code to a safe hidden deep in my mind. I could feel the lock coming undone and a door opening on some dark vault in my memory. In the darkness, there was something I wanted more than anything not to remember. I shuddered, knowing that at any moment the woman with the glowing eyes would look over my shoulder and shine her gaze on that thing I didn't want to see. Just then, clang, clang, clang. I started awake to the sound of the conductor banging her ticket punch against the railing at my feet. She was staring up at me from the aisle below. Rise and shine, she said. In my disoriented state, I must have returned her stare with a look of wild confusion. Ticket, please, she asked, and I got the impression she was repeating herself. My heart was still thumping. I managed to pull out my monthly pass, hands trembling as I showed it to her. She gave me a look like I was a crazy person, then thanked me and continued on her rounds. My mind was reeling. What the fuck just happened? I leaned back with a sigh and wiped beads of sweat from my forehead. Only then did I notice the businessman was gone. Had I really been so out of it that I missed him walking right past me? Missed entire stops? And then a troubling thought occurred to me. I leaned forward to look over the back of the chair he'd been using as a table. Just as I feared, the paper was lying there on the cushion. As stupid as it felt, I had to look again, so I snatched it. I think... Part of me wanted to believe it wasn't even real. I braced myself and turned the paper over. The picture was still there. I was afraid I'd black out or hallucinate again, but instead I just felt an unnerving sense of deja vu, as though I'd seen the image before, a long time ago. There was a caption that read, Residents decorate the walls of Kohler House, apartments for artists. The article was about Kohler House, apparently a tenement that was catered exclusively to those in the fine arts. Winning a contract to paint murals around the city as part of a beatification project. It all meant nothing to me. My gaze lingered one last time on the white-eyed woman before I stuffed the newspaper into my messenger bag. My day at the office went as expected, which is to say that the big show of crisis management had fuck all to do with me. While interns scurried around the open plan space, I stayed at my desk, mostly pretending to work. I couldn't shake my damned fascination with the picture in the paper, which I'd sat beside my computer monitor. I kept a browser open behind my photo editing software, and whenever I could, I researched the article. I never found anything interesting or out of the ordinary, nothing to explain how a photograph could so violently paralyze and consume me. 
That was until my co-worker, Ashley, stopped by my desk with a cup of coffee. She was wearing the same charcoal pencil dress she wore every Monday. You feeling okay, Dan? Because you kind of look like shit today, she asked, brutally honest as usual. Just then, I had a thought. Hey, I said, passing her the article. That strike you in any way? This is a client? She asked, taking the paper with her free hand. No, a personal question. She set her coffee down on my desk and unfurled the paper. I stared at her face as she looked it over, waiting. Ah, artists. The shock troops of gentrification, she said, smirking. What about it? The photo doesn't look, um, I, I don't know, off to you? I could hear the pleading in my voice. She looked at it again and shrugged. I felt ashamed. Was I really so desperate for validation that I wanted the picture to hurt her too? I didn't want to believe that. Sorry, I said. It just had an effect on me, I guess. It sounds like you had an aesthetic response. Her smirk grew. But you'd know more about that sort of thing than me. Art used to be your angle, right? Before you went commercial, I mean. Suddenly, I didn't like where this was leading. There is a saying among people who fancy themselves creatively driven that PR is the dark side. It means selling out. There was a time I used to feel the same way. An awkward silence passed. And then, she spoke the words that turned my world upside down. I guess the style just speaks to you, she said. I can't remember if she said anything afterwards. I don't even remember her setting the paper down and walking away with her coffee, though she must have. There is no way she could have known the effect those words, those specific words, would have on me. I think I told somebody I was feeling sick. I left the office and caught the next metro heading back to my apartment. I sat alone on the train as the memory of a night almost twenty years ago crawled out from that vault where I'd sealed it away. That night, I'd been driving alone in my jeep for ten straight hours. I was traveling home from visiting my girlfriend, who transferred out east that fall. Well, by then she was my ex-girlfriend. It had become painfully clear that our long-distance relationship wasn't working out. Her life had taken on its own momentum, pulling her away towards her career. By contrast, I no longer had any idea where my freelance photography was going. It felt like nowhere. It was after midnight when I passed through Indianapolis. I turned north toward Chicago, and soon I was surrounded by farmland that seemed to stretch on forever. Eventually, the traffic from the city dwindled away and I had the interstate to myself, save for the occasional long-haul semi. By then, the only radio stations I could receive were preaching religious gospel, so I switched it off. I drove for miles in the dark with only the sound of the wind and brooding thoughts about my future to keep me company. At one point, I passed along the edge of a rainstorm, between the loneliness and the rumble of distant thunder, I found myself drifting off into a state of highway hypnosis. 
And then, I saw the girl. She was walking along the shoulder in the opposite direction. As surprising as it was to see someone out here alone in the dark in the middle of nowhere, I don't think I would have stopped if not for something else I noticed. In that tiny snapshot of time, between my headlights picking her out and passing her by, I saw she had her arms folded tight. Her left hand was clutching a gash of red that had soaked through the sleeve of her gray hoodie. My blood ran cold. I pulled over, mentally preparing myself to offer first aid. Hey! I shouted as I opened my door. Are you okay? If there had been a reply, it was swallowed by the wind. I hit my hazard lights and stepped out onto the shoulder. The temperature had dropped sharply after the storm, and my breath fogged up in the cold. The girl was still walking away from me, by then just barely visible in the flashing hazards. There were no streetlights or headlights anywhere, just the endless expanse of soybean fields and swaying silhouettes of ash trees. I called out to her again, and still I received no response. So I followed her into the dark. My eyes adjusted to the faint moonlight. I could see she was young, twenty at most. Her clothes were damp, and her cropped black hair clung wetly to her pale neck. It struck me that she must have walked through the storm. She was trembling, mumbling to herself, and didn't seem to acknowledge my presence at all. Hey, I said when I was right next to her. I reached out for her shoulder. She spun around and screamed. I froze, and she staggered backwards, losing her balance and almost falling into the gravel. I saw then that the red gash on her arm wasn't the only one. There were streaks and blotches of different colors on her hoodie and ripped jeans. It was paint. What's going on? She asked with fear in her voice. Where am I? I told her that I saw her walking along the side of the road, that I was afraid she was hurt. God damn it, she said under her breath. And then, what road is this? I was surprised by her question. It was the only road. I-65, I said. God damn it, god damn it, she muttered, and then screamed in frustration. Then, she started to cry. I didn't know what was going on with her, but I knew she was cold and afraid. I walked with her back to my jeep and dug a blanket out of the back, offering it to her. I asked her if she lived nearby. She told me the name of a town, and I remembered from road signs that it was further along the direction I was heading. Look, I said, I I don't mind giving you a lift back there. We could call someone, you know, and and wait for them here. There's nobody else, she said, and then smiled. You'd really do that for me? It's not a big deal, I said, and introduced myself. She said her name was Colette. As we drove, Colette leaned against the window in silence, staring off into space. My ex's chiding voice came to infect my thoughts. You seriously picked up some cute, mentally unstable hitchhiker in the middle of night? Jesus Christ, Daniel, 
You don't know what she's on. Don't be surprised when she pulls out a knife or a gun and murders you for your car. I wanted to remind that voice that I didn't have to listen to it anymore. But just then, Colette did pull something out of her pocket that glinted in the dim light. It was a Zippo. She flicked the lighter open and closed it. She continued doing so, like she was nervous and needed something to fidget with. When she noticed me glancing at her, she stopped. I was trapped in a fugue state, she said. When I asked what she meant, she told me that she would sometimes find herself wandering around strange places, having lost any short-term memory. It started when she was a little girl. Something bad had happened to her. Whatever it was caused her to dissociate from reality. It had been a defense mechanism, and still happened from time to time, usually when she was stressed. Tonight had been a nasty one, considering how far she'd made it before I snapped her out. I listened and didn't say much, except to ask her the last thing she could remember. Being in my apartment, she said, working on a project. When I asked her what kind of project, she just said, Art. It's a place for artists, she added. To get to her place, I had to exit the interstate and pass through the run-down outskirts of a town that looked like it had been dying a slow death since the 80s. Dilapidated old storefronts advertised liquor and payday loans. The only signs of life anywhere were the lights in a laundromat and a gas station. The latter I was grateful to see, as I was beginning to run low on fuel. Paulette told me to turn at that intersection. We drove down a row of decrepit-looking tenements. I didn't have to ask which one was hers. At the corner, just before the railroad tracks, was a four-story brick building completely covered in paint. As I turned to park, I looked up in awe at the mural that wrapped entirely around it. There was a lot to it that I couldn't quite make out, but what was most striking were the towering people painted like bronze metal figures. They stared out from the mural with big, white, empty eyes that soaked up the jaundiced streetlight. Home sweet home, Carlette joked, and got out of the car. She stepped onto the curb and immediately pulled out a pack of clove cigarettes, lighting one up. I just sat there for a moment, staring up at the people in the mural. There was something captivating about them, even in the dark. I remembered the old Minolta Maxim I kept in the back seat. I got out and fished it out from its bag, making some quick adjustments to the camera's settings. Mind if I get a picture of that? I asked her. She breathed smoke. Go ahead, if it speaks to you. I took the shot. Hey, she said with sudden excitement. I have an idea. Since you were nice enough to give me a ride, and I'm broke as fuck, let me give you a piece I've been working on as payment. I wanted to say that wasn't necessary, but I couldn't help feeling intrigued. It's the least I can do, she smiled invitingly. And then you can have your very own Qualette Cooler Original to take back to Chicago. I conceded, setting the camera back in its bag and locking up the jeep. We crossed the sidewalk beneath the watchful gaze of her painted sentinels. And then we entered that 
damned place. It was Quillette's idea to leave me alone while she changed clothes. It would take her a minute to find the piece she had in mind for me, and her rain-soaked clothing was driving her nuts. She was already peeling off her hoodie when we found her door down a long hall of dorm-style apartments. She invited me to check out the studio upstairs in the meantime, and, if I ran into anyone, to just say I was a friend. And then, we split up. There was a chemical smell in the stairwell that triggered a sudden involuntary memory of standing alone in my dark room, bathed in red light, watching an image slowly develop on photo paper. It was that familiar dark room odor, like a mixture of vinegar and pine saw, wafting down the stairway. It got stronger and sweeter as I made my way up. Whatever purpose the second floor had originally served was dramatically re-envisioned by whoever had knocked down almost every wall. The studio was as enormous as it was messy and cluttered with hundreds of works. Paintings, sculpture, mixed media. Some were unfinished, resting on tables and easels. Others were stuffed into storage racks, cobbled together between the exposed columns to partition off workspaces. Paint spatter covered every square foot of the concrete floor. As I looked around, I found myself drawn to a painting on a bench easel. Something about it had caught my eye. In that final moment of naivete, I thought to myself what a clever optical illusion the artist had created. Most of the large stretched canvas was inky swaths of black oil, but scattered throughout, were these white ovals that seemed to scintillate with their own light, like stars in the night sky. For some reason, I was reminded of the eyes on the mural outside. I don't know how long I just stared, mesmerized by the effect, when I noticed that the eyes were moving, rising like bubbles from the depths of the ocean before disappearing off the edge of the canvas. By then, it was too late to look away. I'd begun to see something that I didn't want to see. Its shadow had been present when I first entered the building, though I hadn't realized. Quick glimpses at the work here and there had revealed its contours, like hearing voices whispering a language that I couldn't understand. But now... It had finally grabbed my attention and held it there. Eyes glued to the canvas. It stared back at me from beneath the oily blackness on the other side. Hot tears streaked down my cheeks. As the eyes continued to rise, they brought something with them, dredged up from some unfathomable place. I felt it rising in me like something on the tip of my tongue, a memory on the verge of recall. And then, it showed me. It showed me Colette, soaking wet, standing in the red glow of my taillights. Her smoky eyes stared back at me from the canvas, and she repeated what she said earlier. There is nobody else. Looking back, 
I think whatever intelligence lurked in that painting was trying to warn me of the danger I was in. As if to punctuate the message, Colette's eyes flashed with blinding light. I staggered backwards, slipping on something wet and kneeling down painfully into a pool of clear liquid. And then, I saw the first body. A woman lay right in front of me, hidden behind a huge leaning canvas. Her long blonde hair soaked up the blood that dripped from her neck. There were others I couldn't suddenly see, camouflaged amongst the chaos and the clutter of that place. Colette's roommates and neighbors, lying dead with their artwork. My first instinct was to crawl backwards to the puddle. I bumped into a workbench and a large amber bottle rolled off the edge and shattered on the floor. As if in response, I heard a door close upstairs. Heavy footsteps creaked toward the stairwell. I sat frozen, swallowed by a primal terror I'd never before known, like I'd woken up in a spider's web. The footsteps descended the stairs. I found the presence of mind to reach for the fallen bottle, pure gum spirits of turpentine. The bottom had broken off, creating wicked teeth of jagged glass. With no other weapon in sight, I held it tight in my trembling hands. The footsteps stopped. For a moment, I was certain that whatever had murdered these people had heard me. If not the breaking bottle, then the sound of my heart pounding in my chest. But they paused only to unscrew something, and as they descended the final flight, I heard the sloshing sound of spilling liquid. And then, they took off running. Colette screamed, and something inside me woke up. I rushed downstairs with the bottle. That sickening sweet pine smell of turpentine was a hundred times worse now. Where have you been hiding? A man's voice snarled from Colette's room. I burst through her door and found them struggling against her dresser. His ratty clothes and hair were soaking wet. He had one arm firmly around her waist. Both of hers were trying to push away the knife closing in on her throat. And who the fuck are you? He yelled at me. Let me guess. The next gullible artist they lured in here to infect. He turned his crazed bloodshot eyes back to her. Isn't that right, Colette? Go on. Tell him. Tell him what you do here. Where the inspiration comes from. Tell him who it is that speaks to you. Colette kicked at him ineffectually, trying to squirm free. He pressed the blade of the knife against her skin. Just let her go, I shouted, brandishing the broken bottle. Oh, it's too late for her, he snapped. If you know what's good for you, you'll get the fuck out of here now. And don't look at anything on your way out. Nothing this sickness has produced. Just then he turned his eyes toward me, but he wasn't looking at me. His gaze fell on something behind me and went wide with terror. Colette seized the moment and grabbed a sculpting tool from the surface of the dresser, stabbing it deep into the flesh above his knee. 
He grunted and staggered, but just as she broke free, he swung the knife, burying it between her ribs. Her own momentum worked against her, and the blade tore a vicious gash across her torso as she fell forward. She stumbled out into the hallway and collapsed. Now he was facing me with a bloody knife. Maybe it's too late for you too, he said, and opened his other palm to reveal Colette's Zippo. He sparked the flint once, and then again. Then he burst into flames. His turpentine-soaked body ignited like a human matchstick. He stumbled forward, screaming, and collapsed onto the bed. The blankets caught fire instantly. The surge of light and heat was overwhelming. I remember pulling Colette over my shoulder and dragging her outside before the fire found the trail of flammable liquid he'd poured and snaked its way up the stairs to the studio. I was doing what I could to stop her bleeding when the windows blew out, showering us in glass. When I looked up, flames and smoke billowed from every hole in the building. The wide-eyed people in the mural were gone. I wouldn't see one again for almost twenty years. The L train screeched overhead and I dropped the tattered newspaper into a garbage can on the sidewalk. The mural from the article faced me from across the street. Kohler House, apartments for artists. Even in the dark, the bronze woman's white eyes shone to me like lighthouse beacons. Her onyx lips curled upward in the slightest sly smile. I crossed the street and dropped my heavy backpack to the sidewalk. I had caught the last train back into the city, arriving just after midnight. Earlier, I dug through the storage space beneath my apartment, unearthing an ancient box labeled Dark Room. Inside were drugs of chemicals and a black three-ring binder. In the binder were dozens of sleeved prints of street art and artists. Tucked in the back was the shot of Colette's apartment building. I set it down beside the newspaper photo. For the first time since that night, I heard them speak to me. They beckoned to me in a language somehow buried in the aesthetic itself. Like a virus slipped into computer code. At Kohler House, I unzipped the backpack and pulled out the jug of flammable darkroom solvent. When I looked back up, the woman in the mural was gone. I could feel her right behind me, looking over my shoulder. Hello, Daniel. I wasn't sure if I heard her voice. I just thought it. Hello, Colette, I said. You've always had the eyes of an artist, she said. They've led you here again. I pulled the lighter out of my pocket. I thought of the people inside, mindlessly enthralled by their muse. Infected. You've run from it for so long, she whispered. And it was true. How many years had I been hiding in that soulless routine, languishing, 
and that hollow joke of a career. Could I really go back now? Come inside, Daniel, she said. Join in the great work. I was beginning to lose it, I could tell. Just like on the train that morning. Just like in that studio, almost two decades ago. I put the lighter back in my pocket, my thumb already raw from grinding the flint wheel. I knew what I had to do. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You've been listening to The Eyes of an Artist by author Stephen Miller. We are locked, loaded, and ready for round two. Let's do this. And now, without further ado, from author N.M. Brown, I give you Cracked and Broken. Hey, you've reached Aaron and Katie. We aren't home right now, but leave us a message and we will get back to you. Thanks. Katie, this is your mother. You didn't call last night and missed lunch with us today. I'm getting very worried. Please call us back, okay? I listened to the message and looked down at my wife's bruise-colored face. Her eyes glazed over and lips contorted. Her fingers fall limply from their grasp on my arm, finally dangling lifelessly at her side. My hands continue to shake, even after I let go of her neck and she drops to the floor. Rage still burns through my veins while my heart continues to break. You're probably wondering what happened, or why I find myself in the situation that I'm in. You also may already think that I'm a terrible person. Before you jump to any definite conclusions, let me tell you the whole story of how I got here. Katie and I met in our early twenties, when she says it was love at first sight. She said she noticed me before I noticed her. We hung out after work one night, and that night turned into a relationship that lasted eight years. She entered my bed and never left it. We seldom left each other's side. We lived together right away, always hung out together, and we even worked together at a few jobs over the years. We had a wonderful five years or so until we started to try to have children. That's when her depression started. She would withdraw and go quiet. Her silence was like ice, too cold for me to touch. 
I couldn't understand why things couldn't be happy with just us. I know how badly she wanted to be a mother, but we still had each other. We had a connection we dreamt about for most of our young lives that some people never find. We started with just the two of us and were happy. We could still be happy just the two of us. After about two years, I made an appointment with a fertility clinic. They both needed to be checked to see what the holdup was. They were able to find that Katie's fallopian tubes were ravaged with cysts and, sadly, had to be removed. Right along with any hope or chance we had of having a biological child. Honestly, as terrible as it sounds, I'm glad we went. Not because of the result, but because they could find a problem that Katie had and fix it. I tried to be there for her, to sympathize and help her cope. The upcoming winter season didn't seem to be helping either. We tried marriage counseling and individual therapy for her. I even spoke to a few adoption lawyers to ask about the process to give us options. It's not what we... She had planned, but I always supported her and her dreams. If she wanted a baby and I couldn't give it to her, then this was the next best option for me. She wouldn't hear of it, of course. Adoption was like a dirty word to her. She cringed when I first said it. She couldn't handle the idea of raising someone that she didn't nurture and grow in her womb. Forget about saving another child's quality of life. She was too narcissistic for that. I'll only be a disappointment to them, Aaron. If I don't feel that connection, they will sense it, and that's not fair to them. You raise a child for the majority of their life, and that's just fine. However, when they get to a certain age, they want to know their birth parents. When you have no idea how many birth parents pop up wanting to know their kids. And wouldn't you know, it always seems to happen after they turn 18, she would say. No matter how I went about it, it always ended in tears, nights on the couch, and the silence of a frostbitten atmosphere. She seemed to have started to come around after about a couple of months. I came home and found her listening to music and swirling around the kitchen tiles in her socks. She had painted her fingernails a metallic baby blue. In honor of wintertime, she told me excitedly. To me, her painting her nails was a great thing. If she's pampering herself, she was happy. She was present. She was my Katie again. I couldn't help but smile when I saw the woman I had married so many years ago. She even told me she joined a social media group about infertility and loved her support. It gave her strength to hear other people's struggles and get to share our own with people who truly understood. I was happy for her. I wanted to tell her that I was there for her too. And I also understood that if she shared with anyone, it needed to be me, her partner. I was the other person sitting in the chair when the doctor told us. I had visions and dreams crushed too. Well, she didn't need to hear that right now, though. Now she was happy. So I was happy. She certainly was getting support. Her phone would constantly vibrate with notifications and messages, sometimes at all hours of the night. I figured, well, it was a big group, and it's not the same time everywhere in the world. 
She must have set it to notify her every time someone posts something or likes something of hers. She needs support from women right now who understand. Katie took it very seriously. I'd hand her her phone when it was near me and went off. She would give me looks, like a kid gives his peeping neighbor during a test before covering his paper so he can't copy. Hey, baby, she said, looking at me with dancing eyes. You know, some of the women of the group are talking about picking a weekend and doing a spa meet and greet. It's to help put more people in contact with each other, for women to get pampered and cry on each other. You know, things like that. It's not like we have to find anyone to watch our kids. She tried to joke with a pained smile. Does this sound like something you would like to go to with me? Honestly, all of the crying would be so unsettling and awkward for me. Yes, I did love my wife. She's the only one I have ever loved in my life. However, infertility was already something I had made peace with and accepted months ago. I couldn't bring the level of understanding to the table needed for this. Um, would you like me to, honey? Or do you need to be with your new women friends? I honestly want to go and support you if you need me. However, it would be super awkward if I was one of the only men there. There are men in this group, right? When I said this, she tried to stifle a giggle by biting her lower lip. She shook her head no, and then burst into giggles, apologizing in between breaths. <laughs> Not really, no. They're just a couple, and those are mainly joint accounts. Aaron, you don't have to go. I will be okay, and I understand, but I think this will help me. Besides, this will give us a chance to miss each other. I'm sure I'll come back refreshed. I won't think you're unsupportive or uncaring. It turned out that it was two weeks away and in the next state over. It would only take her three and a half hours by car from where we lived. She would have no problem getting there and having her weekend and then driving back when she woke up on Monday. I planned to surprise her by making a meal and rearranging the living room while she was gone. I wanted to take care of all the little tasks she nagged me about, but I never got to while I had time to myself. The time came for her to leave. I sent her off with a kiss and my favorite t-shirt. I told her, You wear this on your saddest cry day. I want to still be the one to wipe your tears even if I can't be there. Again, she got a pained look on her face, but she shook it off with a smile. Thank you for understanding. I will miss you, and I'll call you every day, she told me. I kissed her, and then she left driving off into her weekend of healing. After picking up and cleaning the floors, I was almost ready to start rearranging our living room. I had been putting off cleaning the dust off of the ceiling fans for way too long. Neither of us wanted to do it, but I was the taller one, so the task generally fell on me. She would be so happy. She'd be proud that I did that when she came home, a refreshed Katie coming home to a refreshed house. She called at around 9pm and let me know that she got there alright and missed me already. She blew phone kisses after a knock at the door. Hey, that's my friend. I'll call you in the morning, okay? I love you, she said, before getting off the phone. I hoped this would help her and help us be what we once were. Around the middle of the next day, Saturday, she informed me that her phone was dying. 
I looked at the counter and saw both of our wall chargers lying there, so I called her and told her just to use the car charger, but not to leave it in while the car was turned off because A. Someone could steal her phone and or B. It could kill her battery. She promised me that she would be fine, that she couldn't talk long, but she loved me and missed me like crazy. For the rest of the day, when I called it would go to voicemail. I was just thankful she could tell me what had happened, so I wasn't worried when I suddenly couldn't reach her. I mean, she had never met these people before. They could have been anyone. Who knows the conclusions my mind would have jumped to. (sighs) I should have made sure that she packed the charger. I sent her a, have fun, our bed is cold without you, text from work. I wanted my message of love to be the first thing she saw when her phone had more battery life. I couldn't wait to smell her hair again. Before long, it was Monday, the day she was to come home. We chattered excitedly on the phone for a minute while she packed. I rushed off the phone to get last-minute things ready for her arrival. Our home missed her as much as I did, I thought. It was so much darker without her here. The emptiness was swallowing me. I would be glad to have her here in my arms. I bought some reunited and it feels good alcohol for us to enjoy, and then went home and waited. She walked through the door. I gave her a hug that lifted her off the ground. She did look different. I couldn't place it, but it was different. She almost held the glow of being centered, finally able to find some peace with herself. I was glad for that. We had both needed that for her. Seeing her so rejuvenated made me feel the same, and we relished our time together. We were so wrapped up that she completely forgot to say anything about the house. But that's okay, though. She's here now, and that's all I ever wanted. The holidays came and went, with Katie seeming like a bulb growing brighter every day. I was thankful she was able to turn it into positivity. For some childless couple, the holiday season can be a big slap in the face. Her group even did a secret Santa, one of the members sending Katie a very name-brand, very expensive, very out-of-our-budget gift. I was happy for her. She deserved nice things. She really lucked out on her secret Santa. One day I had gotten a call when Katie was in the shower. Her mom said that her father had some chest pain, so she took him to the hospital. I relayed the message to her and she rushed out. I handed her some clothes, her purse, and the keys. I lovingly told her to keep me updated on her way out. I hoped that my father-in-law was going to be okay. I would have gone with her, but I had to work in a little over an hour. I heard a buzzing and looked around our room to see where it was coming from. It sounded like a phone. I opened my phone to see that it wasn't mine. I got on the floor and peered under the bed, and there was Katie's phone. I figured it probably fell out of her purse when I picked it up to hand it to her earlier. I couldn't help myself. I unlocked her screen. What I saw made the color drain from my body and curdled my stomach instantly. Katie, I had so much fun this weekend. I can't believe how amazing everything was. I didn't even want to sleep. It's crazy how well things went. Now I know. Alan, 
Oh my God, hard same. I felt so comfortable with you. Three and a half days, it's like we've been together for years. Katie, I think this group will have monthly meetings if I can manage. We've been talking for so long, and then we met, and it was like an instant connection. I can't wait to see you again. I knew I loved you, and then it was confirmed for me 100% when I saw you. I can't wait to meet your son. Alan. Me too. That's all I can think about. I know that my kid will love you just as much as I do. You are perfection. The total package. A trophy to be shown and proud of. To say you're hot would be an insult. You are beautiful in every way. Now that we know it's real, you have to work on your end of the... situation. I won't be played for a chump. If you do love me and want to keep me, you need to do some decision-making. This isn't a game and it's not a fairy tale. If your husband makes you happy, I'm out. But if you want me, do the work. Text me when it's okay to text back. I love you, gorgeous. I read the messages over and over again until the words blurred through my tears. My mind raced to try to think of something, anything, to make this look different from what it was. My wife knew when she asked me to come with her that I would say no. That's why she made it so easy for me. We had never taken separate getaways before. All of our vacations were always spent together. Oh, she had changed. She was happy. And now, I knew that it was because... Because of him. Oh, she had healed all right. Hailed herself right into someone else's family. She reacts like I say the word abortion instead of adoption. And now she can't wait to meet her son. <sighs> it was all too much. She had thought that I wouldn't understand her healing process. And she was fucking right. There was nothing to make me understand this. When was she going to tell me? Was she going to tell me? Would I have just come home one day to a note saying, Adios, Aaron. It's been fun. <laughs> I raced to the trash can and threw up, my love turning to bile in my throat and spewing it out. All of her words... All of the love, the plans, the promises turned to poison in my heart. Every memory proved to be a lie. Every struggle ultimately unfelt by her. Did she even want children with me? Did she ever love me? What was the point of all of this? Every single question branched off into five more questions, attacking my mind like a murder of crows. I lit a cigarette on the way to my car, drove to the corner store, and bought a lot of beer. I never drank before, but if there was ever a time for it, now was that time. I chugged one at the parking lot and opened another for the ride home. Father always did say that the road to a man's self-destruction always begins with a woman. And it looked like he was right, I thought. 
as I threw a crushed can out of the window. I lit another cigarette as I pulled into the driveway and saw her car there. Without thought or care, I drank two more before going inside, lit cigarette and all. She was sitting there on our bed with her phone lying in front of her with the screen lit up. Her eyes widened when she saw me smoking in the house. She opened her mouth to say something about it, but then quickly closed it, realizing the shots weren't hers to call here. She wasn't upset or crying. She just looked... numb. I've never wanted to hit a woman in my life. My hand throbbed with desire to. I rubbed my hand to my jeans to try to disperse the energy. I loom over her and shout... You can tell Alan that it's safe for him to message you now. He can message you any time he wants, and it's not my problem anymore. You've never been who I thought you were. The past eight years were all a lie, I said, as my words turned to shuddering sobs. I didn't want to give her the satisfaction of seeing my heart break, but I couldn't help it. Through all of my anger and hate, I still saw her sitting on the bed. She looked so small and lost. All I wanted to do was hold her. That wouldn't happen, though. Not ever again, if I could help it. She finally cried and apologized. She promised that she would end it and block him and get rid of social media entirely to work on us. Hmm. She said she wanted to be a better wife and got lost. She said she got mixed up and the situation became too big for her to get out of and she needed help. She had the gall to tell me that she was glad she got caught and now <laughs> I could help her get out of it. She said she never stopped loving me, and never loved him. I felt neglected by you, Aaron. I felt like I lost you and myself when we couldn't have kids. I thought I had found myself and figured out my life. But I was wrong. I went to leave you. And I couldn't do it, Aaron. I will do anything to fix this. We can come out of this stronger and with a better understanding of each other, she said. We spent an entire week apart, me taking a little trip of my own out of state to clear my head. She went to my parents and cried to them about what she had done. She apologized for hurting their son and asked for forgiveness, figuring it would eventually lead to mine. Though manipulative and inconsiderate to my parents' mental health, it worked. She picked me up from the airport, and again, I hugged her so hard I lifted her off the ground. We went home and reconnected. We talked for hours into the night, and then again, when we woke up the next day, we had worked a lot out and decided what we needed from each other to get past this and not let it ruin us. The only thing I asked of her was to block his number from her phone and to never, 
under any circumstances, positive or negative, have contact with him again. This was my time to heal, and that was the only way I would be able to do it. I would not forgive her twice. Though I did not tell her at the time, she did ruin us. I saw Alan's picture next to his messages, so I knew his face. Every time I would kiss her or touch her, I would see his face like a ghost. Alan making her laugh, him kissing her forehead and making her sweat. I hated it. I wanted to hate her, but I couldn't. Despite everything, she was still the woman I loved and always would be. Even if I did leave her, we would get through this. A part of me died when I found out what she did. Maybe that part will grow back stronger, better. A few more months went by. Valentine's Day came and went with no issue. I was nervous about it, but Katie tried her best to make sure it was a good day for me. For us. I started to see the ghost of Alan less and less. Katie was turning into the woman I married again. It was terrible that she needed this to get back to that, but I could work it out as long as I had her. She would never leave me again. She promised. She had deleted social media, as promised, and Alan's number remained blocked. My heart started to heal slowly. I was well on my way in love with her again, not like nothing happened, but like we didn't let it break us. I stopped checking up on her as much. She felt terrible about it and seemed to punish herself more any day than I ever could. So, we let it fade into the past. She'd never leave me again. She promised. Hey, Aaron, can you please look at my phone? I think I have some sort of virus, she asked, her gray eyes heavy with concern. I laughed at her and joked, You know how you got that, don't you? Too much freaky-peaky. What kind of sick shit have you been looking up? She slapped at my arm, giggling on her way to our kitchen. No, come on! I can't get any of my pictures to load, and I wanted to send some to Mom. You're off today, please. I told her I would help her and to give me an hour with her phone. I would back up her pictures and factory reset if the problem was too bad. I transferred her pictures over to our computer just in case. Then, I unplugged her phone and looked through her message to make sure she didn't lose any critical numbers or pictures if I reset it. I went to the text setting to see any locked or starred messages with pictures of us. I saw an option on the phone that said, Locked Messages. With very wary but overwhelming curiosity, I opened the folder. There were so many. All from Alan. I'm sorry about how I act sometimes. You know I love you. 
I just think that when two people want to be together that they should do anything they can to do so. It's hard for me to imagine the situation you're in at home, and I just get frustrated. Tell me you're thinking of me. I love you, Tuts. Just want you to know that no matter how mad I get at you, I could never stop loving you, and I'll never turn my back on you. You look beautiful today. I love talking to you. It's been the best part of my day for months. Good morning. You are rocking it today, babe. They went on and on like that, and my mind snapped. The frail bandages holding my fragile heart and mentality all fell away. I looked over to her across the room. My breath was coming out in faster and bigger huffs, and my face was burning red. She looked at me confusedly. What? Before she finished her word, I was out of my chair and in front of her. The time for words has ended now. I only ask you for one thing. Just one fucking thing. I stood up to leave as she launched off the couch, throwing herself on me. Aaron, please, I don't understand. We've come so far and I've worked so hard. Why would I do that to just talk to him again? I haven't been talking to him. Don't go anywhere. I know I messed up last year, but I wouldn't do that again. Her sobs grew louder. No way. There's no way that she gets to be the one to cry here. She doesn't get to feel anything but shame right now. I'm the one who should have been crying. But of course, everything was always about her. I couldn't even have feelings without her trying to steal them so she could end up being the victim. I had to stop it. Get her to be quiet. I slammed my hand over her mouth, but she still sobbed, soaking my hand in snot and tears. Her wails grew louder and louder, repeating the same words over and over. It was as if she thought the more she said them, the more I would have believed her. The only things that I do believe are that I can't bounce back from this twice, that I can't live with her, and I can't live without her, as the saying goes. My hand dropped from her mouth to her throat, the other coming up to meet it. Now, it was my turn to feel. I cried and sobbed, and I squeezed my hands tighter and tighter. Her eyes bulged with betrayal and fever as the edges of her face began to purple. Fragmented wedding vows grunted out through my teeth as I heaved with tears. I wanted my face to be the last thing she saw as the life that she decided to throw away faded out of her eyes. Her wails turned to whimpers until finally, barely any sound could escape at all. Till death do us part, my darling. And I promise I won't be far behind. So, this is how we got here. My mother-in-law's voice on the home answering machine. Her daughter turning colder by the minute on the floor. My hands are shaking. 
and my sides are sore from the sobs. The light of my life is gone. Why did she have to do this to us again? She always said she was born to be my wife and that she would die for me. Here we are. She ended up being true to her word in one sense. At least through all of this. I rechecked the block list and see a new message from 18 minutes ago. I love the way you smell. It read. Enough of this shit. I hit the call button on the message. It rings and rings until finally... A woman picks up. Before I have any room to say anything, she starts yelling at me. You have to be some kind of stupid to continue to call after everything you've done, Katie. The woman said my wife's name as if it was disgusting on her tongue. She continues. As far as his son and I are concerned, you might as well have been driving the car that killed him. Do you know he had messages set up pre-scheduled to send you for two months? It's nice to know you have messages from him after he's dead. But what about his son, you heartless slut? She's going on and on, hysterical with fury. I tune her out and hang up the phone without a word. I think, really think, about what she'd said. She said the words, kill, and pre-scheduled messages. Katie was telling the truth. She hadn't contacted him. This also explained why he still went on and on as if they were together. It was over. She really was mine again. Oh my god. I run to the bathroom, rifle through the medicine cabinet and grab a bottle. The neighbors heard the noise and called the police already. I don't know if I will have the courage to take the contents of this bottle before they break the door down. For now, I'm going to snuggle up to my beautiful bride. I will hold her for as long as I can. And that let go. I hold her and smell her hair as I wait for the knock come to the door. They can try, but I'll never let go. She will never, never leave me again. She promised. Till death. Do us part, sweetheart. Till death do us part. You've been listening to Cracked and Broken by author N.M. Brown. N.M. Brown is a married mother of three who has taken the horror community by storm this year. She has lived in St. Augustine, Florida for her whole life and took creative writing in high school. Her ability to create, terrify, and drive home stories is insurmountable. 
whether you're a parent, spouse, animal lover, or anyone even remotely susceptible to fear, this is your girl. Brown's published works can be found in multiple anthologies for all to read, but be forewarned. If you do, you may want to call your therapist after. Her stories are terrifying, disturbing, and devilishly unsettling. And she's not only a fright in print, but also has a creepy tentacle in horror podcasting as well. This sinister sweetheart writes, voice acts, and is the media director of the Scarecrow Tales podcast. Stephen Miller is a lifetime consumer of horror fiction with a passion for writing. He holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in fiction writing from Columbia College, Chicago. He's also worked with student game designers from Tribeca Flashpoint Academy as a writer and designer, and has won the Gamma Sutra Game Design Challenge nearly a dozen times. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks, available now on audible.com. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another dance with darkness. I bid you good night. Sleep tight, listener. And whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to Horror Hill, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, as well as a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill, unless otherwise noted. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors, sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Felipe Ojeda under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek. The program's logo was created by Craig Groshek 
and this week's artwork provided by Omega Black, unless otherwise noted. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more, and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for hundreds of free audio horror stories, including more performances from yours truly, and consider supporting us by becoming a patron at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, I'm Jason Hill, and you've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast. Good evening, and sweet dreams. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.